Galatians chapter 3, beginning uh, at verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprison everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Now back in verse 24, Some of the more traditional translations use the word tutor instead of guardian. I'm going to refer to it that way. Now, when we come to a summary of the Ten Commandments, we need to think that there are basically three ways that God uses the law in our lives, and not just our lives, but universally. And the first of these is called the civil or political use of the law, The second is what we would call the tutorial use of the law, which it leads the elect to put their faith in Christ Jesus. And then the third use of the law is given to Christians particularly in the sense that it is a guide to the way we should conduct our lives day in and day out. So you see that it starts with the world. God created the world. God's law is over all the world. Then it becomes particularized as it talks about the people who are going to be brought to faith, the elect, and that God's law is used as a means to lead them to the reality that they must put their faith in Christ. And then the third is the next logical step, how does the law relate then to that believer? And it relates to that believer in showing him to how he should conduct every aspect of his day in and day out life. Now when we talk about this first use which we call the civil and political use of the law, very good day to be talking about that today as it appears that the Supreme Court has struck down the defense of family laws that have been in our nation. So what does God's law say about this? Well as we think about God's law for the nations we can think into the past, we can think into the present situation in which we live, 
But then there is hope because the scriptures forecast the future in reference to God's law. So when we think about the civil political use of the law, we say that God's laws are always universal. So if you read in the scripture one of these laws of God, they are absolutely universal. Now you say, well, how so? Well, if we looked at the commandment dealing with the Sabbath day, you remember how it reads that six days God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what we're being told is universally God created and God is the owner and God is the ruler over the whole universe. And as such, he has created laws that originate with him that are to be normative for all creation for all times. God is the creator, and under him, he has the laws that regulate all of our thinking and all of our doing. But we also see that God's laws in this way civically and politically were given to the nation of Israel. Now, when we think of the nation of Israel, sometimes it's hard for us to get a grasp on these things. We think of Israel as it is today, and it's hard for us to grasp the, the sense of when there was no church, and all there was was the witness of Israel in the world. Now, if you think about your own body for a minute, and you say, okay, I'm thinking about my body, good or bad, young or old, What's the center of your body? Now, the way most people look at the center of their body is their belly button, their navel, is the center of their body. Now, I'm saying this just to impress upon you the sense of God making Israel a witness to the rest of the world through the giving of Israel his laws. God gave his laws to a nation that were positioned in the navel of the earth. Now that's the way Israel has always looked at itself. And in reality, in particular, the people of the city of Jericho, this deepest city uh, in, in the world. You know, we've got Highlands, North Carolina, the highest incorporated city east of the Mississippi, that's how it gets its name, well, Jericho is at the lowest point in the earth, some almost 2,000 feet below sea level, the navel of the earth. Now, what that meant was in the ancient world that Israel was placed in the absolute epicenter of the crossroads of civilization. So people from Asia and Europe would come down and go down through Israel and they would go into the African continent. People from the African continent would come up and they would go and trade in Asia and in Europe. Where did they go? They had to go right through the navel of the earth. So when God positioned Israel in this place, it was so that when these people came and went, they would see the way these people lived, and the scriptures say, they would see their conduct and they would say, what a great God, what a loving God these people have 
that he should give them such great laws. So the civil and political use of the law given to Israel was given to them to regulate their lives, but it was also to be a witness to the greatness of God uh, in ancient history. Now, the other thing that we see is that the civil and political use of the laws have always been normative in our nation in its history. No matter how we want to slice and dice all the issues related to the founding of our nation, certainly the moral law of God was always a part of that. And I want to make a mention of that when we close this point. So that's kind of the sense of the past use of the civil and political use of the law. In the present sense, in our own nation, you know, here I am, uh, the last day of the year, I'll hit 65. So that's my birthday. I want you all to get ready for it. Save now, spend later. 65, it's going to be a crisis. I'll need a lot of bolstering up. So I remember when rape was a capital offense in the United States of America. I remember when kidnapping was a capital offense in our nation. Well, why? Well, because if you go back into the Old Testament and you see the aspects of the civic and political use of the law, these were laws that were given to Israel, and they were made normative in our national life. Murder was a capital offense. Now, since these things have been removed, uh, murder even in some states is not really considered a capital offense, what has happened? Well, it doesn't, it's, we're all witness to it. All of these things have multiplied. As a result of the law being taken out of the public sphere in man being made the measure of all things, well, man has taken away God's laws and has sought to establish his own laws, but nonetheless, these things remain true. So what now today would be like abortion, where abortion is legal, it is not moral because it violates God's moral law. Well, if in fact the Defense of Family Act has today been struck down, then in some way, shape, or form, the advancement of the homosexual agenda in the culture will move ahead rapidly, but that does not negate the reality that it is greatly condemned in every aspect of the scripture's witness, God's witness to the world and to our own nation. We think of no-fault divorce. Our church is constantly involved in things of church discipline. One of the principal areas of church discipline that we deal with is marriages. And, and people are always looking for the particular aspects of, for lack of a better word, wiggle room for their own particular case. But the scriptures are very clear about the whole aspect of divorce. There's not really any legitimacy in divorce unless there is some violation of the marriage, either through uh, an adulterous situation or through an abandonment of a marriage, which basically it seems to be a, another aspect of the violation of the sexual union by just negating it. 
And, and so when we see that those are the two, only two real legitimate areas of divorce, well, our nation has gone totally against that when it just says, well, we'll just divorce people. You know, you used to be, just a few months ago, you could go up I-75 and you get almost to Forsyth and on the right there'd be a billboard and it'd say uncontested divorce, something like less than $400. Um, free and easy. God's moral law today still regulates our lives, but it is now being, as it were, uh, marginalized by the American political situation. All right, now what is the answer to all of that in the sense of the civil and political use of the law? Well, there are some very clear answers, and one of the clearest answers is, is to know the law. So if you don't read the Old Testament and you don't read the books of Leviticus, you don't read Deuteronomy, and you don't read the books of Kings and Chronicles and things like that, or some of the prophets, then you're basically insulating yourself from the breadth of God's law in its application in a society. We read these things and we see them. Now, our own confession of faith that most of you all, if you're Baptist or uh, independent church people, Presbyterians, if you've got that kind of a background, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the general equity of the application of the Old Testament laws into the life and structure of a society. And that's, again, the way we should look at it. But you cannot, as it were, understand the law if you don't know the law, if you haven't read the law. So it's a good thing to be very conversant about these laws in the Old Testament. Then the other thing that's an answer is that you yourself as a Christian should be a model Christian citizen. That's what you should be. You should seek in every way, shape, or form not to be an offense to the state. Now, that means that you are not bound in areas where the state tries to bind people in the area of things that violate God's moral law. But in the other areas, we should seek to be model Christian citizens in every way. Um, I've got fast cars. Some of them are real fast. I don't think you're going to see me going real fast in the cars. Okay? Haven't gotten a speeding ticket. Now, these cars will go 140, 150 plus miles an hour. They sure are fun. But is the public street the place for me to be having my own individual, personal idea of fun? It is not. So, we need to live as model Christian citizens. Then, too, there's another way to respond to where the, the areas of civil and political use of the law in being politically active and serving in the various levels and structures of our own local, state, national government where that's appropriate. And some of you should consider this. Some of you have been very gifted, and some of you also have time. And you should avail yourself to finding ways to being a part of this. Now, you always are going to have advocates of, of saying, we're getting rid of Christianity, and so don't try to bring it back. 
And so you say, well, let's talk about something like rape. Let's talk about something like kidnapping. And they said, no, we don't want to talk about that. So what the structure of the pagan society wants to do, as soon as we talk about a Christian view of of a structure of society, they want to build a straw man. And typically the straw man that's pulled out first, the very first one that gets pulled out is, you Christians want to put to death incorrigible children because that's what God's law commands you to do. If we let you come back, that's what you're going to try and do. That's a straw man. Nobody's trying to do that. What is it that we as a church and a Christian society would advocate? Well, it's portrayed to us on the walls of the Supreme Court where you have in relief there a picture of justice holding scales. But what do we know about justice holding the scales? What is unique about justice as she's portrayed there? What? She's got on a blind. She's blind. In other words, what we want as Christians is that the law would be applied how? Uniformly, equally, with no respecter of person. That's what we want. But no, they're going to say, you want to stone children. Well, we need to understand God's laws and some of these straw men because some of us are going to be involved in the public arena in discussing these things with people who don't hold our opinion but are malleable and may end up being influential. But if we don't understand God's law and how they should be applied, we will not be able, as it were, to see some of these problems relieved. Now, God will certainly raise up people, and certainly this pendulum that's swinging one way will certainly swing back the other way. But let's talk about the far distant future. What does the scripture tell us? Well, it tells us that there is a lawgiver, and they tell us that there is a king, and the king and this lawgiver go together And what are we told about the long-distance future? And it's this, that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so law, as we know it, in a civil and political use, will come to a grand and glorious climax and an eternal application of it perfectly, in all aspects of creation on the return of Christ. Now the second thing we need to think of is the, what we call the second use of the law, which is the part that is the pedagogical use of the law, that God leads the elect to faith in Jesus Christ. So in this passage, Romans or Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor, not guardian, guardian's fine, but the idea of tutor uh, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. One of the reasons that God gave the law is so that the law would come to deal with somebody like me. So here I am, wild child in South Florida, and I was every girl's parent 
nightmare, like, oh, no, he didn't really show up on our doorstep, did he? We've been praying against this, and here I am. Well, all of that caught up. In one day, John came playing with his rope, and guess where I ended up? at the end of that rope. God had let my life run its course. Now I am under tremendous conviction for all manner of things that I have done. I have sinned against this law. I know guilt. I know shame. I know condemnation. I know all manner of things that the Bible talks about that people outside of Christ should deeply experience because of their alienation from God, their hostility against God, and the violence of their actions. I knew that. What happened? Well, at the same time that God is showing me me, he's showing me Jesus. And I can tell you that I knew about Jesus from preschool. I can remember coming home and telling my parents, I don't know who my brother is, but I know who I am. I'm John 3.16. I was probably three or four years old when I came home and made that announcement. But it didn't make any difference. But now at 22, and I'm at the end of my rope, the scriptures say, you know, John, there is hope, there's a way forward, and it's through a person, and the person is Jesus. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, he takes away my guilt, my shame, my condemnation, all of those things. I've received the Holy Spirit. Now I have a new power within me. I've got the scriptures in front of me. I've got the fellowship of the church. I've got a a Christian tradition that informs me. I've got a Christian future uh, in which is the service of our, our Lord. And I'm on my way. And I'm not looking back. I'm not like the person plowing, looking over my shoulder, Looking back, I'm looking towards the future, and I'm moving on. That began then. It continues to today. When we come to the end of our rope, that's the law serving its purpose to convict us of sin. So God's law leads all mankind to the end of their rope, but God's law remains God's law. The laws are violated. Violation results in a conscience sentence. The sentence is obvious that a person's going to die in their sin and that there's none righteous. But God's elect law for the elect points to God's truth in Jesus Christ as the one who is tempted at all points yet without sin. Then God's law was fulfilled in Jesus' perfect obedience. The penalty of God's law was assumed by Jesus who paid for it in full on his death on the cross. And then the the law justifies the Jesus that was put to death by raising him from the dead 
And the law vindicates Jesus as the result that he has declared the Son of God with the power to save all who will put their faith in him. And so the law leads us to the end of our rope, and at the end of our rope, if you're part of the elect, you see Jesus clearly and you embrace him fully. And a person is freed then from the curse of the law. I was 22. I returned to my church where I was baptized. There were people there from South America Mission. There was a wonderful preacher there. He was on the original masthead for Christianity Today. Volume 1, Issue 1, this man named J. Wake Fulton's name was right there. And they preached the gospel, and I heard the gospel, and I was converted. My life was transformed. I am not what I was. I am not what I shall be. But I am what I am by the grace of God in me. Paul could say this in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So the law leads us to Christ. It still convicts me. I am a Christian. But it convicts me of my sin. And according to 1 John chapter 1, it points me to the cross of Jesus Christ. If we confess Jesus in our sin, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us as Christians from all sin. Jesus cleanses over and over again. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. And yet, in the future, there's more. And that more comes in in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so in that future day, you know, I was saying this morning, here I am, I'm 64. My mom lived to be 94. That means I could pester you all for 30 more years. You might need to get used to it. But if it's 30 more years out there, that would be wonderful. It's not likely, but it would be wonderful. But when I cross over that divide, the sense of God's law and its application to me will be met by Jesus Christ, who is my advocate. And as my advocate, he will say, I have paid the penalty for his sin. That should be our confidence in our long future ahead of us. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach is what Paul tells us in Colossians 1.22. That's the way we will be. Now, the third use of the law is the sense of a rule of life for all believers. Now, we've come into a number of problems when we talk about the law in relationship to believers. And so the primary problem comes in that people always like to apply to things like the law the term kiss, which means, come on, 
Okay, keep it simple, stupid. Well, it's not. Your life is not stupid, and it's certainly not simple. Your life is complex. And as a result of it being complex, we cannot do things like saying, okay, I don't need to worry about the law. I need to worry about the demand of love. Because the law by Jesus, Jesus is the guy, he's my guy, and he says the law, you know, is love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor. That's all I need to know. Well, we have now just come to a 113-year cycle of the end of that kind of thinking in the way things are being dealt with structurally in our society today as we've gotten away from the law of God and tried to apply to the law of God this reductionism. When we say to love God and to love our neighbor, we need to understand that that's a summary of a summary of God's law. Where is God's law summarized? Where do you think that is? Ten commandments. So there is the law of God that is larger, and it's revealed in the scriptures, but all of the laws of God can be summarized in one of the Ten Commandments. Now, that law can be further summarized in saying we are to love God and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. But these are summaries. They're not the law. Let's look at Jesus from another perspective. Let's say it's now time for Jesus to depart out of this world. What does he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye into all the world and make disciples, teaching them what? All that I have commanded you. Well, Jesus, all you said was love. (laughs) We got that. Is that really what that means? Well, of course not. It goes back to the previous summary of the Ten Commandments. And it goes back from that to the summation of the law that is found in the rest of scriptures. That's what it means to follow Jesus. God's law is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit... Violations of God's law for the Christians make us feel lousy. First John promises make us feel the truth of God's cleansing. And then we move ahead in life, and our life is full. Our life is full because we've found the answer to all of life's problems in the Scripture for all of God's law is opened up to us. And the Holy Spirit uses these things to direct, to correct, to encourage in order that our lives might be 
adequate and equipped for every good work. That's what he's promising us. So as we come to a summary, we need to let this law of God become something that we can have like the psalmist that says, Oh, how I love thy law. Or like the psalmist who gave us Psalm 19, where he talks about the glories and the wonders of the law. Or in Psalm 1, where it talks about the one who walks in God's laws all the days of his life. He shall flourish. He won't be blown away like the chaff. We don't want our lives blown away like chaff. We want to be like the tree, firmly rooted by the springs of water of life. And all of this is pointing us to a great love for God's law and God's word. Let's pray. Now, Father, we're thankful for Christ, who did all things well, for his example that we're to do all things well. The spirit that possessed him possesses us so that we can do these things, that we can live for your honor and glory, and that we could be a witness the way it, Israel was supposed to be a witness, that we'd be that witness to the people around us. And then our lives would be great and glorious and full and large because we've understood your word and let it have application and run in every area of our life. And we thank you most of all that salvation is ours, full and free, in and through all that was accomplished by Jesus Christ for us and accomplished by the Holy Spirit in us. So we give you thanks for all this great life. In Jesus' name, amen.